0: Thank you so much, Sunlight, for singing and leading us in worship, and uh, thank you also the Talwood players who um, I think have uh, led us beautifully on a couple of occasions uh, today, I guess uh, four times total this weekend, and I'm grateful for uh, them. I'm grateful for Randy and for the privilege of sharing ministry with him for not even uh, not even half of his time. I'm 14 years and he's 30, but... Uh, It is remarkable um, in these days that a minister stays in a church for some 30 years, and yet you have had multiple ministers like that, which tells you something about the ministers you've chosen, but it also tells us something about the church that we serve, that this is a place of authentic relationship and um, great sharing of life, symbiotic sharing of life. I prefer to say synzoetic. sharing of eternal life kinds of relationships. Whenever I talk about Tallowood everywhere I go, people ask me, they know about you. Um, Don't be surprised, but they know about you. And they say, tell us about Tallowood. And I say, for all these years, it has been a life-giving place for me and my family and uh, for 50 years now. And uh, Randy, for 60% of that time you've been here, so that is uh, remarkable. I won't keep making the numerical things, but I just I just think it's, it's really remarkable. As we come tonight to 2 Corinthians, I wonder, is God's grace enough for us? Sometimes we look at God's grace and we say, well, I, I like grace, but I'm glad I have this or that. And the minute we begin to try to supplement God's grace with something else, I think we, we go awry because God's grace is either enough for us or nothing else will ever be. Matt Chandler tells about a woman who said to his wife, I, I want to go to church and I'm a Christian, but I can't go to your church because I know the people there. And his um, wife said, well, please elaborate. And she said, well, you know how they are. You know how those people… At your church are. Everybody knows how those people at your church are. And I mean, I believe in Jesus and everything, and I love God, and I want to go to church, but I just can't go to your church. And she said, please just be more specific. And she said, well, you know, just how they are. They're just, you know, they're there. And she was implying that they were hypocritical. And, and uh, this is hard for a pastor's wife to tell the pastor, but she did. She went home and told Matt, um, you know, this lady said this. And And Matt said, well, do you know her? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, what's she like? And she started telling what she was like. And he said, you know, just knowing that little bit, I would say that this would be a perfect place for her to come. She would fit right in. And, um, you know, the church at Corinth gave Paul a lot of trouble. And we may look at church as a good way to meet all the best people in the area. But Paul's Corinthian letters remind us that this is not the case Tallowood is not full of perfect people, but we are forgiven people, and we live in relationships that are current with God and with each other, or at least we want to. And as we saw in recent weeks, God is conforming us to the image of His Son, so we may not be as much like Jesus as we would like to be, but, but in time we will become more and more like Jesus, and some of you have progressed further in your sanctification than I have, and I am grateful that you are showing us the way. My prayer is that Tallawood would be a place of grace, a place where we are forgiven and where we are forgiving graceful with the beauty of the grace that God has given us and gracious to others who need grace. Would you open your Bibles with me, Second Corinthians chapter one, verses one through seven? And chapter 12, verses um, 7 through 10, we'll read just these sections from the beginning and the end and try to bring this together. Carlos has once again chosen the perfect songs for this text tonight, and I'm indebted to him and grateful to work with him. Let's stand together to hear the word of the Lord tonight, Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort which produces in you, patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. And then, in near the end of the book, Paul is um, dealing with his relationship with these fellow believers. And in his words, he is uh, boasting. And if I could pick up, and let me just read Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things things that no one is permitted to tell. I, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, <clears throat> so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, it was given, I was given a thorn in my flesh then I am strong. Pray with me. God, thank you for a word from your word tonight. You who know our hearts, you who know the mind of the Spirit, would you speak to us tonight and apply these words to our hearts so that we would grow, Lord, so that we would become more of who you want us to be, so that people in our community would see Christ in us and want to know you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You would have thought, at least I would have thought, that the Corinthians would have gotten better. I mean, look, if one of the books of the Bible were written to you and it was read publicly in your church, and Paul even calls some people by name, you would think that that would sort of straighten people out. But what happened in the church at Corinth was one problem would be resolved and then two more would would spring up, sort of like weeds in the the garden. Just one thing they would work through and then other things would come. And Paul really has a series of letters back and forth with them. We have um, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians scholars believe that there were series of letters that they wrote and then reports that Paul received about them. And he might have even received one of those reports while he was writing this letter because there's a dramatic shift in tone between chapter 9 and chapter 9. And chapter 10. But what we do know is that Paul was working through the struggle and the difficulty of relationship with a group of people. He had shared ministry with them for over a year. He had loved them. He had poured his life into them. They had poured their lives into him. He had given them his heart, and he believed they had given their hearts to him. But then when he was away from them, he found about the many things they were struggling with and he wrote a very firm letter and called for church discipline to be exercised against one of the men who was way out of bounds in a moral relationship that was reprehensible. And, and Paul's heart was broken by the pain that was caused to the church by his letters to them. And so he writes this letter in part to be conciliatory but even as he's writing he knows that they're not sure about him that that they say about him well yeah he's really powerful with a pen but when you get him in person he's he's really not all that I mean he's not that significant he's not that powerful yeah he sounds good on paper but when he gets in front of us he's he's really not that strong and so Paul takes a tone in times in this letter when he's saying to them hey I gave my heart to you give your heart to me Every pastor knows what that feels like. Every Sunday school teacher, I suppose, knows what that feels like to pour your life into a group of people over time and to want to believe that they're trusting you as you trust yourself to them. And so Paul speaks to them and he writes to them and he says, I don't want to brag about anything about what God has done, but but maybe I need to brag about, about this, that God has worked in my life and the word that came to me as I read through 2 Corinthians this week and the new NIV, the word that came to me again and again was the word grace. Now that's nothing spectacular or sensational, because if you read any of Paul's letters, grace is, is really important. But maybe nowhere more important than it is in this letter, where Paul starts by saying to them, Grace and peace to you. He he starts that way, but he ends. He ends the letter. We will see with grace. As well. And along the way, he talks about how grace has worked in their lives and how grace enables them to live in relationship with each other. And when I read this letter, I wondered Is Tallawood really a place of grace? Do the people outside the church think of us as people who are gracious, graceful, grace filled people? Or would they think that that Tallawood is one of those churches that talks a lot about the gospel, but then Is pretty judgmental when it talks about people, and pretty quick to sort of uh, lower the hammer on those with whom they disagree. How would they see us? Would would people outside this church think that this would be a place where people with problems could come, where broken people could find a home? Not not every church welcomes broken people. It's my impression that Tallewood, through the years, has, and it's my hope that for the years to come, we will be a place of grace. The thing about grace, as we all know, and and Larry and I often look to this text when we're trying to minister to people Who've lost a loved one. The thing we know about grace is that God's grace is sufficient. That's that's what Paul finally received from God when he prayed to God and said, I'm a broken person, I've got a thorn in my flesh, I need this to go away, God, and I'm asking you, not once, not twice, but three times. He pleads with God, please take this away. And each time God's answer to him is, My grace is sufficient for you. That is, my grace is enough. And I've discovered, have you, that grace really is enough. That grace is enough to comfort us when we're suffering. And Paul wrote to suffering people, but he wrote to suffering people in Corinth as one who himself had suffered. And maybe in no other letter does he more accurately or carefully describe the sufferings of his life, the, the pain in his life. And so he says, the thing about grace is grace brings us in contact and connection with the God of all the comfort, the Father of all compassion. And notice what he says about God's comfort in our lives. He says, this God comforts us so that we can comfort each other, not just so that we can be comfortable. How do you say that? I've been listening to people. I never thought about it till this year, and I heard a member of our family say comfortable, comfortable. And I, I said, I don't think that's the way you say that. I had too much hooked on phonics, I think, but comfortable is the way I would say that. But if you listen to people, most people say comfortable, comfortable. However you say it, God gives it. He gives us comfort into our lives, but not so that we can be comfortable, but rather so that we can comfort each other. It was Joseph Parker who was preaching, and he said, when you preach, preach as though there are people before you with broken hearts, because in every pew, there is somebody with a broken heart. When I was 19 and naive, I I said that to my congregation, but at 49, I've learned that it's true. That in fact, there is a broken heart in every pew. We don't always know about them because church is not always a place where you would tell other people about the hurts in your lives. But I want us to be that kind of place. As Ken Metemus sings, if this is not a place where my heart cry can be heard, if this is not a place where I can cry, if this is not a place where I can pour out my heart to you, then tell me, where will I go? I mean, if people can't come to the church and find comfort, where in the world... Will they find it? God comforts us so that we may comfort each other. I laughed this week when I read Jill Briscoe's story about her youngest daughter who went off to church camp and wrote a letter to her and and told about all the things that the people were going through and how this one uh, cried herself to sleep one night and this one got sick and, and this one had a bad dream. And she said, I just hug them. She's a fifth grader. She said, I just hug them. She said, I like being known as the comforter. Well, there is a comforter. The Scripture talks about the Holy Spirit. But I've noticed that the more He's at work in our lives, the more we become like Him and we comfort each other. He goes on to say the grace of God is enough to restore the sinner. In chapter 2, I believe, there may be others who disagree with me, but I believe he's referring uh, cryptically, carefully, back to the man whom he said, deliver him over to Satan so that his body can be destroyed, but his soul can be saved. This man who was living with his father's wife. I don't know what that means. I don't think I want to know what that means. But what I do know is Paul said, even as pagan a place as Corinth was, they were appalled that something would be done like that, and it was being done by Christians. And instead of the Christians grieving over that sin, they they were puffed up, he said, with pride. And he said, the church ought to mourn over sin and you and I from time to time hear about a fellow believer who's done this or that it would be easy to to sort of scoff at others but Paul says the appropriate emotion is to grieve to mourn over that sin. And Paul said, take action, just like I was there. Put this guy out. If he's not going to obey God, if he's not going to accept your correction, if he won't respond to the church's correction, then put him out of the body so at least he'll realize, I can't live like that and continue in that habitual sin and bring shame and reproach on the name of Jesus Christ and still go to church like nothing was going on in my life. A church is a place where we as sinners come, but it's not a place where we come to be ratified in our sin. It's not a place where we come to, to hear people say, well, you sin, I sin, let's just continue to sin. No, it's a place where grace is applied to our lives. And as Paul describes it, he says, look, it sounds, it sounds like when you read chapter 2, like this person has repented of that. And, and Paul says in verses 5 through 10, if, if you're comfortable, um, then, then here's what you do. Instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, he says in 2, verse 7, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. We want people to repent. He, he says later in the letter, you know, I, I'm, I'm sad that I made you sad, but I, I'm actually happy because your sadness godly sorrow led you to repentance and if you get sad enough that you change from your sinful behavior Paul says even though it makes me sad to see you sad that really makes me happy because you're really doing what God wants you to do and Paul believed that the grace of God was enough to restore the sinner and I wonder if you and I believe in God's grace that strongly I wonder if we are a people who offer forgiveness to sinners no matter what they've done because the, the longer I live, the more I see some people when they fall, fall really, really dramatically. I mean, they, um, they fall um, publicly and painfully and dramatically. And I'm not sure we as Baptists are as good at this business of restoration as some others are. In, in fact, I I learned and, and, and heard about a man years ago who was a marvelous orator, golden tongue. I remember one time him preaching in a conference and he was talking about the man who said to Jesus, I won't follow you now because I need to go and bury my father uh, first. And, and this pastor said, um, this man made a bad exchange. He, he, traded, he traded the um, silver trumpet of the resurrection for a shrouded casket a bad exchange, marvelous rhetoric. And then it wasn't long, not many years after that, that when he fell dramatically from one of the greatest pulpits in our country that he found himself selling funeral plots in a city, wrote a big tell-all book. It's interesting to talk to him now to hear how God has restored him. And it really started with um, some churches that reached out to him and said, we're not perfect people and we want to hear how God has worked in your life and how, how over time he was restored and found grace. And in the most unlikely places, churches that were really not of his tradition reached out to him and said, well, we're sinners and we've been saved by grace and you can be saved too. And I believe in a marvelous way God is using him these days even to teach preaching, and he doesn't teach preaching and say, do what I did, but he teaches preaching and says, this is how I fell, and I pray to God that you will not follow in my steps, but you will learn. He's a wounded healer, really, one who's been broken and healed by God, a sort of living testimony to the power of grace. Paul goes on to talk about the new life that we have in Christ. In chapter 3, he talks about how you and I are reflecting the the glory of God, brighter and brighter in our lives. In chapter 4, verse 7, he talks about this treasure that we have in earthen vessels, this treasure we have in jars of clay, that all the power is from God. Somebody has said one man's trash is another man's treasure. Perhaps nobody knows that better than the, the man who was getting married some years ago and uh, he said to his fiancé, we need to just get rid of all our junk and have a garage sale. He had, a, he had an, an old uh, Declaration of Independence hanging uh, in his garage, and so he put it up for sale, and it, it was bought, and then it ended up in an auction somewhere, and somebody recognized it and bought it for $2.48. He sold it later for $477,650. It was a uh, and early replication in 1823. Somebody had scratched out that. And the guy, how would you feel if you were the guy who lost it? He said, you know, I'm happy. I'm happy for that guy because I didn't know what it was worth. It would still be hanging in my garage. At least I got rid of the clutter. I guess there's some grace in being able to rejoice with those who rejoice. Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the power is not from us. The power is from God. And he ends chapter four really with a, a sort of beginning of talking about how we, we groan inwardly and, and inwardly we're wasting away, but uh, outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed each day, and how even though we're suffering, God is renewing us. And He says that very much like we saw in Romans 8 recently, that this suffering is working, this, this momentary uh, suffering in this life, this temporary suffering is working in us an eternal weight. Of glory, that the glory that will be revealed in us is greater than the suffering we experience, and he he talks in chapter five about putting off these um, these outer tents and putting on a new body, getting a new body in heaven, and says in chapter five verse ten, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He. He says the love of Christ constrains us. That's why Paul says, I'm in this ministry of reconciliation because God's love working in my life gives me no other option. It's making me a new person so that I have that become a new creation if any person is in Christ. A new creation has come. The new NIV translates it that way. There's a, there is a new creation. and old has passed away and, and all things have become new. The thing about grace is it has the power to to make us new. in in chapter 6, talking about this new life that we have, that grace brings to us, he he says in in chapter 6 that we're not to link our lives, that we're not to to continue in idolatry and sin, that we're not to be unequally yoked with sin. You've heard that expression. And then in in chapter 6 at the end, he warns them about idolatry and And in the beginning of chapter 7, which I think is part of the end of chapter 6, he says, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. If God has made you new, he says, well, let's put off the old, and and he says similar things in Ephesians and Colossians, put off the old clothes and and put on the new clothes. You, I, I read this week about a man who, who married back in the 30s and he, he had this old clabbered house and he renovated it for his wife, but that wasn't enough. She wanted a new house. And so he tore down the old house and he built her a new one. But uh, the grandson was expressing that he used parts from the old house and so there were still the same creaky doors that didn't fit in the new house. He just sort of renovated but, but brought in some of the pieces of the old. And maybe that's the way we try to live our lives. We say, Christ has made me new, but there's this habit or this area of my life, this spiritual stronghold that I can't overcome, and I'm just going to continue in that. But I'm going to be a Christian, and, and he said about his grandmother, she had always hoped for a new house. God hopes for more for us than we hope for ourselves. He wants us to be made new, that we would perfect holiness out of reverence really out of the fear of the Lord I heard Tony Evans say recently this is what fear of the Lord is the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom the beginning of knowledge we read in Proverbs uh, chapter 1 verses 7 and 8 we we have this fear of the Lord what is the fear of the Lord because it sounds like it's not good but this is what Tony Evans says he has an inimitable inimitable way of, of expressing things he says fearing the Lord is just taking him seriously I wonder, do we take God seriously? And then he goes on to say, you fear the Lord, you take the Lord seriously, not with your talk, but with your walk. I mean, it's one thing to say, I fear the Lord with your talk, but does the way you and I live, a friend of mine who who got in a lot of trouble recently, said to me, I would have said I feared the Lord, but my walk said, the way I was living said, I, I was not taking God seriously. It's interesting, isn't it, how we compartmentalize our lives. I could apologize to our young people because I think we've shown the way. We adults, our public Christian leaders, have often sort of compartmentalized and been able to be very involved in the church on the one hand and very engaged in sin on the other hand. And are we surprised that a younger generation is coming up and saying, is that really what Christianity is about? Can I, can I sing to Jesus at camp and then then sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend when I get home? Can I, can I live one way and sing another way? And Paul's answer to that, his gracious answer to that is no, that's not what Christ saved us for. He saved us for more than that. In chapters 8 and 9, he shows us the grace of God enables us to be gracious in our giving as well. And he talks about this grace of giving because the church in Corinth had said, we're going to give. In fact, the churches in Achaia where Corinth was, Corinth and Athens were big cities in that part of Greece called Achaia. And they had said, we're going to give to a cause. We're going to give to a special ministry need. And the churches in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica had heard about it, and they just raised an offering on the spot. It's one thing to say we'll give, and it's another thing to write the check, isn't it? And the churches in Macedonia wrote the check. So Paul writes this second letter to the church in Corinth and says, I know you said you were going to give last year. And, and if you were wondering, when are we supposed to give? Well, that would be now, Paul says. Kind of like m- Memorial uh, um, Memorial Middle School across the street. You know, they don't have a big fundraising campaign. Their campaign is just called write the check. You know, well, that's kind of what Paul says. Just write, you know, it's time. If you're wondering when to write the check. And he teaches us about giving in this, that giving is Proportional. If we've been blessed a lot, we, we give a lot. If we've been blessed a little, we give. we give in proportion. He says what we're looking for is equality, not of gift, but equality in giving. And he talks in chapter 8, verse 9. I don't want you to miss this. Chapter 8, verse 9, and chapter 9, verse 8, if you're trying to remember. I think these are significant verses about giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, talking about giving, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He puts our giving in a spiritual context of saying Jesus in heaven was rich, but for our sakes, He became poor. He emptied Himself. This kenosis, the theologians call it, Philippians 2, He became nothing. He who was everything. He who forever was everything became nothing for us. He became sin for us, He will say in verse 21, so that we, chapter 5, verse 21, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In Him, And here he says he became poor so that through his poverty, Jesus' death on the cross, we might become rich. And he says your gift is acceptable according to what you have. Chapter 8, verse 12, he says we want you to avoid any criticism in the way we administer. Paul's very concerned. He says we're doing this the right way. We've got witnesses. We're not misusing the money. We want to be right with God, he says, and right with people. And then in chapter 9, verse um, Six, He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. You ought to give generously, he says, because the way you give will determine how you receive. This is not really sort of this um, you know, um, prosperity gospel that some preach these days, but this is what he says, and I, I believe this is true. I found this to be true, that God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You're gonna, if you will do what God wants you to do in terms of giving, you will have what you need to do what you're supposed to do. It's just a simple way of saying that. There are studies, by the way, these days that say the people who give the most percentage-wise in our country are not the wealthiest people, that it's still the widow and her mite that keep the church going, that it's still the person and the measure of the gift, as Jesus taught in that story, is not what you give but what you have left. And And it's interesting, there are 943 billionaires in our world today, 943, I don't know, maybe somebody became one over the weekend, but but before there were 943 on Friday, 943 billionaires and on average they give 1.2% of their wealth, of their earnings each year to charitable, Have you ever said, you know, like, like, I know you didn't play. I, I know you didn't play that lottery that went this weekend. But I mean, if you did play that lottery, have you ever thought, you know, if I won the lottery, I would really be, or if I ever got wealthy. But statistically, what happens is Christians, when we're not as wealthy, we give because we know that's what God wants us to do. And over time, the wealthier we become, the lower the percentage that we give. I I know a billionaire. A friend of mine had an honest conversation with him. He's just a little more plain spoken than I am. And he overheard this millionaire say, well, I used to tithe, but But if I tithe now, this billionaire, he said, if I I tithe now, it would absolutely ruin the church that I'm a member of, and I don't want to ruin the church, so I don't tithe anymore. I can't afford to tithe. He said, it would just wreck the lives of people. If I just started randomly giving money out, and especially if I tithe to my church, and my friend, again, more plain spoken than I said, I wasn't aware that we were able to change God's rules on those things, he said to the billionaire. He said, for instance, when it says in Malachi, bring the tithe into the storehouse, so that I may open the windows of heaven. But he says, it sounds like God has opened the windows of heaven for you, and you've decided not to do what God told you to do and you used to do. And he said, I wasn't aware that we could just sort of jettison the things that God taught us to do. And he said, the billionaire looked at him and said, thank you for your wisdom on that subject and walked away. Well, sometimes on the subject of wealth, we don't want to hear what God has to say. But this is what I know, that when we are faithful... God will demonstrate his faithfulness to us again and again. And again, in chapters 10 and 11, Paul wrestles with the church at Corinth. We think maybe he got a message from them that said, they're they're really bowing up at you. They they say, we don't care what Paul thinks. And Paul says, well, just so we can contrast my ministry with those super apostles that you elevate above me, because they said, you know, we've got our apostles here, and Paul's a lesser apostle. Paul said, the thing about those super apostles is God knows, but he said, they they might be masquerading. After all, Satan can masquerade as an angel of of light. So maybe they are. I don't know, Paul says. This is what I do know. None of them has suffered more for the gospel than I have. I've been shipwrecked and beaten five times within an inch of my life. I was stoned to death. I've I've been in the country. I've been in danger from my own people. I've been in danger from other people. I've been in danger, in danger, in danger. And Paul says, I'm not going to brag about who I am. And that's where we get to chapter 12 where he says, I know a man in Christ, he's talking about himself, who was carried up to the third heaven. Wouldn't you like to, he said, these are inexpressible things. I'm not supposed to talk about them. Please, Paul, tell us what happened. We'd like to know what happened in the third heaven when you were taken up to paradise. But Paul said, here's the deal. This is what I'll brag about. Paul said, I've got this thorn in my flesh. And as he outlines it, I just want you to see in chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, what he says about this is that this, whatever it is, it's a messenger from Satan, and it's to torment him, and it's to keep him from becoming conceited. It sounds like it's physical, like the flesh here is not the flesh like the sinful nature, but this thorn is in his actual flesh. People have speculated what what it was through the years. Was it his eyesight? Had he had malaria? We don't know what it was, but whatever it was, it's something that caused Paul to pray. Have you got a thorn in your life that you pray about? It might be some problem or some burden or some need, and you've, you've given it to God, but then you, you keep coming back and saying, God, why haven't you done anything about this? And, and God's answer to that is grace. He gives more grace, and he says, my grace is sufficient for you. One of my favorite preachers passed away not long ago, John R. W. Stott, in the world Christian community, maybe maybe the greatest Christian of his generation. Ask Randy Hatchett. I think I'm right about this. I'm not sure. But one of the great, great men of God and, um, and an evangelist, a missionary, a scholar, a pastor. Um, when I was in England on sabbatical seven years ago, I kept going to churches where young pastors had been trained by him. And I want to tell you, whatever you've heard about the churches in England, the ones who are pastored by the young men who were trained in those summer pastor conferences that John R. W. Stott put on, those churches are happening. They are moving. The Spirit of God is working in them as they proclaim the Word of God in an expository way, teaching the Bible. And John R. W. Stott told about how back in 1958, he was in Sydney, Australia, and he was preaching there, and he got the message that his father had died. He had one more night of the conference. He was preaching to college students. There's something in him wanted to get on a plane and go home and be comfort to his own family and the loss of his father, but he felt he had a mission to accomplish, to, to complicate matters. He was losing his voice, and by the time he was to preach that night, he gathered some college students around him, and he read um, 2 Corinthians 12 of verse 7 to them and said, I've got this thorn in the flesh. Would you pray that God's grace would be sufficient for me tonight? By the time he preached, he said, He couldn't modulate his voice. There were no highs and no lows. It was just, just he croaked out the gospel that night. But there was a response and the invitation like they had not seen in the whole conference. And he said, I've been back to Australia. He wrote this not long ago. I've been back to Australia no less than 10 times. And every time I go, somebody will come up to me and say, do you remember that last night of the college meeting in 1958? And I'll say, yes, I remember that night. How can I forget that night? And they'll say, that was the night that I gave my life to Christ. And God's strength was perfected in His weakness. God teaches us, doesn't He, that it's not about us. Or it shouldn't be about us. It's about Him working through us and His grace being sufficient for us. And the thing about God's grace as He comes to the benediction is uh, in chapter 13, verse 14, He says, God's grace will bring us home. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He starts with grace. He talks about grace and he ends with grace. I read about Craig Barnes this week and Craig's uh, story of his father who abandoned him when he was 16 years old. He said that my dad had claimed to be a Christian, but then he left our family. He said he missed his two sons' graduations. He missed our marriages. He missed both of our ordinations. He missed our our PhD um, ceremonies where we received our doctorates. He missed all of that. And always we would try to find him. And whenever we got close, when we got close and he knew we were close, he would move again. And then from some small trailer park in Florida, we got word that my father had passed away. A local pastor there had searched for family of this man for two days before he found me and my brother. And we went and and we shared in the funeral service. And he said, for all those years, we prayed. He said, I kept, I kept thinking that one night I would stand up and preach. And after the service, in the crowd, my father would come down and, and shake my hand and say, well done. But he never did. And after the funeral, he said, my brother and I went to this rickety, wretched little trailer where my father spent the last years of his life. And we found his devotional book there. And he said, I had wondered about all those prayers that I had prayed for my dad. Were they just like laying around somewhere in heaven, never touched? But I found my father's devotional book. And he had literally worn it out. It was dog-eared. And he had written about different verses in his journal, what those verses meant to him. And then he said, I found his daily prayer list. And at the top of his prayer list were two names, my brothers and mine. And it occurred to me that though he had lost us, he had not lost his faith. And though we could not find my father, God never lost my father. And he said, as I sort of tried to understand what all that was about, it occurred to me that, God's, that my prayers for my father had not been answered in me finding him, but at least God had found my father. My father had never lost his faith. And he said, I came to the conclusion that, that even when I was praying I was not getting what I wanted. At least I was talking to my, my eternal heavenly father who has always been faithful to me. And after my father died, he said, I found peace with God and peace with my dad. And there's a grace in that. You who take such good care of your ministers, I wonder, how is it in your families I wonder if you've brought the grace of God to bear in your relationships, not only with each other, but with the people who are nearest and dearest to you in your life. And I wonder if you've come to that place of maturity where you can give grace and without anxiety or frustration, you can love your loved ones even though they're imperfect and you can give them grace and receive their grace in return. I wonder if we remember the words of John Newton who said, it's grace That's brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. And forgive us, Lord, for somehow ceasing to be amazed by your grace. And tonight, Lord, would you give us the grace to be the kind of people that you have created us to be. No pretense. No mask, Lord. We are broken people. We are fallen people We are recovering hypocrites, Lord. But we want to recover from our hypocrisy. We want this to be a place where we can take off our masks and be honest with each other and say, this is my battle this week, and without the grace of God, I will not stand. Father, help us tonight, I pray, to believe what you have told us is true and to put grace into practice. In our lives, in this church, your church, Tallowood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.